0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at FBCevansville.com. Life is not ideal. You will admit that. It's hard to accept that. We can make our movies and our books ideal because that's a sort of reality that we craft, and we can smooth out the rough edges and have the conversations proceed very smoothly, and things always turn out very nicely and purposefully. But you don't write life, God writes life, your life. And so it's not ideal in the way that you would make it ideal. God's ways are higher than your ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, he says in the Old Testament, so, are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts? So, this is ideal to you, and God pushes it out of the way and gives you his ideal, and they're not the same. Now, some things that we encounter in life do seem to make sense to us. So, you may have a neighbor, and you've been praying for this neighbor, and One night, the neighbor comes over in distress, feeling guilt before God. You pray with them and they profess Christ. And you can trace the hand of God's providence in that act. It makes sense. God's working. What do you do five years later when that same neighbor has turned his back on Christianity? That would not be a part of the book you were writing. And yet, it's happened within the book God's writing. It's not your ideal. Life rarely is. You've heard the saying that the grass is greener on the other side, and maybe this is too pessimistic, but what Michaela and I say to each other is that the grass is dead everywhere. (laughs) And this is true. This is how life is. This wasn't true in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the Garden of Eden, all the grass was green, but starting in chapter 3, when we ruined everything by our rebellion against a perfect God, now the fields are dead. And now, it's difficult for us, even as we know God's mysterious hand is over all that occurs, it's very difficult for us. And by the sweat of our brow, we strain to try to understand what God is doing in a broken world like this. Why doesn't He stop that from happening? Why does He let that happen? And He doesn't always tell us. That being said, there is a great joyful mystery about this non-ideal world we live in and I dare to pronounce it and it's this that God doesn't need an ideal world to get the glory he seeks and deserves and that we want him to have if God needed an ideal world to do what he wants to do he would have just kept it an ideal world We want an ideal world because that makes things so much easier. God doesn't need it. God gets glory through a broken, non-ideal set of circumstances that we title your life. (laughs) In fact, divine wisdom demands that we confess that even though we don't know how, God has governed things here in such a way that this is, if we put God's glory at the pinnacle where it belongs, This is, in that sense, the best of all possible worlds. Because God doesn't need an ideal world to get glory. God, in fact, will get more glory through the very non-ideal world that you live in and experience every week. If you were to ascend the throne of heaven, take up the scepter, and change what you want to change, you would actually mess it up. You would change it, get rid of things you don't like, make it into what you imagine the very best to be, and it would be not the very best. It would seem like it. It wouldn't be. God would get less glory, and you would get less satisfied. God's glory is our good. Those are not separate. God doesn't need you to ascend his throne and fix what he's messed up. He knows what he's doing. It's just that we don't know what he's doing. Just think of the non-ideal things in this world and you'll begin even from an earthly vantage point to see how it might be possible that God could use a non-ideal world to get the most possible glory. Think about it in this world from earthly vantage point. Think of the most non-ideal things. War. There is nothing good, ideal, healthy about one man, made in the image of God, intentionally taking away the life of another. Anyone who has experienced war knows it's an atrocious thing and yet, a soldier risking and even sacrificing all to protect the ones he loves, there are few things more honorable, more glorious. Sickness is not ideal, and yet, you know, when you encounter someone who with courage has faced the diagnosis of cancer and with joy has reached out to others, what potency that adds to that person's testimony. What honor. And I'm sure that the martyrs didn't feel like it was ideal when the match was lit. The kindling at their feet or when the lions came out to consume them, these are not good things. And yet, with what esteem we hold the early martyrs and the martyrs today, what honor we give to them, and rightly so. And if this is true just on earth, when we look at non-ideal things, what honor can grow out of that barren ground? How much more is that true in heaven as God works His good purposes? We don't know why each individual tragedy happens. We know that God knows why and sits upon his throne, scepter still in hand, governs all events, and in the end, it will be made known that this very broken, messed up world, not as it should be, and yet God directs it all, weaves it as a tapestry to produce the greatest glory for him, which in the end will be the best for us. Why does it even matter to talk about this kind of mystery? Because if you don't believe that, you are going to be disillusioned with God, with life, with everything, because you are going to go out there and live a pretty odd, non-ideal sort of life, not as exciting as the movies or the books. And you will naturally be tempted to believe that God must then, what, not be in control or not be wise? You'd be wrong. He's in control, and he is wise, and he's working out his ideal. It just may not match yours. And you have to grasp that by faith if you want to weather the storms that are in your life right now or that are coming into your life. You may have a picture in your own mind of what your Christian walk will look like going into the future. But then the drunk driver comes and breaks that picture. That's a non-ideal life. That's life. And you have to be ready for that. It requires a strong faith. We mentioned that this morning, this life of non-ideals, because that's what Paul is going to talk about in our text, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. In fact, you remember from last week, he's already started talking about how God works in very not ideal circumstances because he said he was in chains, but he wanted the Philippians to know that through his very chains, it really worked to advance the gospel. Something good came out of it in God's purposes. But now he's going to go even further than that and give you an even worse scenario that he's experiencing and say, this too is in God's hand. And God, it's not our ideal, but it's God's ideal. So let's see that here in Philippians chapter 1. And we are starting with verse 15. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, not ideal, or in truth, Christ is. Proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Pause there. We have before us, and Paul has before him, two distinct groups of people. The former, the latter, the one, the other, some, the other. There are some similarities between these two groups. Paul names those. They both proclaim Christ or preach Christ. Both of them. It's not false teachers, true teachers. It's both proclaiming the actual Christ. That means preaching the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. So they have that in common, but that is where the commonality ends because if you go down into the level of the heart, Paul says they're driven by very different motives. Couldn't be more different, their motives. And he gives some very colorful language to describe it. One set of Christians are the ideal Christian evangelists, these are the ones he says who operate out of love. That's, of course, the way you should operate. And in an ideal world, if you were writing the script, that's how every Christian would be, yourself included. That's ideal. And yet, they are not even the emphasis of this text. Paul is instead emphasizing the other group, and they are not ideal. Shockingly not ideal. These are evangelists. They are Christians like you. They seem to be genuine believers, best we can tell from the data here, and yet when they proclaim Christ, it is with atrocious motives to make Paul feel bad, out of envy, jealousy, rivalry, selfish ambition. Surely not among Christians. Sorry, among Christians. But what Paul is going to say in verse 18 after describing both groups is that God doesn't need an ideal world to get glory. In either case, in every way, ideal or not, Christ is glorified. And that's what gives Paul joy. That's what lets him endure his circumstances. And that, and nothing short of that, is what lets you endure your non-ideal circumstances that you're facing right now. You have to believe, because it's true, even if it doesn't look like it, that Christ is using the messed up events of your life to get glory. And if you value that more than anything else, you'll be fine. That's what you want. That's what Paul wants. So we're going to this morning look at the two groups he presents. First, of course, is these, we'll call them selfish And the other group, sincere Christians. Selfish, sincere, and we'll end by looking at Paul's attitude as a sincere Christian himself. So let's look at that in the text. How does Paul think about these persons, starting with the selfish? Some indeed, verse 15, Paul says of them, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry Jump to verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And in verse 18, he just says they do their work in pretense. Like I said, what's interesting about this passage is that this is where the emphasis of the passage falls, not on those good Christians, we'll see preaching out of love, the emphasis falls on the bad Christians, the very messed up, non-ideal ones right here. You can see that in the structure of verses 15, 16, 17. It's like a sandwich in a way, right? So he begins by talking about the messed up, non-ideal, selfish Christians who are preaching selfishly. Then he says, well, there's others right here. They preach out of love, but then he comes back again to, but the others, others, they're bad. (laughs) They're preaching selfishly. And then, even when he gets to verse 18, at the end, he starts with them, whether in pretense or in truth. The emphasis falls upon these non ideal Christian evangelists. Now, if last week you thought, probably you didn't, but if last week you thought that Paul was pressing it in a sort of Pollyanna manner that he could look at the chains upon his wrist, that this The greatest evangelist of the day, the one God was using to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul the Apostle, author of much of the New Testament of the Scriptures, he is stopped in his tracks and sent to prison or house arrest in Rome, chains on his wrists, and he is strapped to a rotating set of Roman guards? That's not good. That means he can't go out and proclaim the gospel. How's it going to go forth? It just was born and now it's stopped. And we saw last week, Paul said, it really this, this really has advanced the gospel, contrary to what you might think, because number one, the rotating set of guards, you bet they've heard the gospel and now it's spreading in the very heart of the empire in Rome. And number two, when other believers see how fearless Paul was in this horrible circumstance, they thought, well, if that's the worst Rome can do, we might as well preach too with boldness. If you happen to think, well, that's a rather um, optimistic spin on events, the reality is you're just chained. I don't know what you'll think this week because things are getting worse. And Paul's attitude never turns to the negative. He sees in this worse situation something very good that God is working here. Can Paul pull a happy rabbit out of the miserable hat now that we've gone further? Yes, and that's what he does. We expect unbelieving Romans of the ancient world with their pantheon of gods and their reverence for the emperor when they feel threatened to strike at the young Christians. We expect it. It's not good, but we expect it. That was last week. Now what we have this week is worse because you don't expect Christians, even zealous evangelists, who are spreading the gospel just like Paul, to do that in a way intended to hurt Paul. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? I don't know. It's very shocking. In fact, the reality is at a distance, it's almost impossible for us to know in detail how they managed to do this. I mean, when you look at our text, you and I are very familiar even among believers, we know how someone can do things from envy and rivalry. What we don't know is how someone can, quote, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, or we understand someone who may struggle with selfish ambition, but how do you, quote, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but trying to afflict Paul in his imprisonment? (laughs) That's confusing. This would be like, what, Gently petting a kitten out of furious rage. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure somehow you can do that. It's just not what you would expect furious rage to produce. Envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, a desire to afflict, pretense. You don't expect it to produce the proclamation of Christ. But that's the very weird situation Paul found himself in. That's what they were doing. Now, you're like me, and you want the details of how they did that. (laughs) I don't have them, okay, but I can give you my best guess, and it's just as good as your best guess, I guess. Paul had become, maybe, here's a guess, we know Paul probably there in Rome is well known in that Christian community. This is the great apostle, three missionary journeys. His reputation had certainly spread. The Jews nearby had come to him in Acts. at the end of Acts when he came to Rome and said, hey, we've heard about this way. We don't know it in detail. So news about Christianity, certainly news about Paul had probably come to Rome. And now there he is imprisoned. But Paul was elevated in position by God as an apostle. You know if you've read Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, that caused problems because there were others in the Corinthian church Who were the alpha male, and they did not want Paul coming in and stealing everyone's attention. So they tried to discredit Paul. We call them the super apostles. They said, look at him. He's in affliction. He's not a great speaker while he's here. He's suffering, he's stoned, he's beaten up, and we are healthy, wealthy, wise, glorious. And they tried to steal the affection of Christians away, even as they were doing ministry and certainly proclaiming the gospel. They were just saying, we do it better than him who does it wrong. If we transfer that to Rome and guess that something like that is happening here, then probably what you have are these alpha male type leaders in the Christian community in Rome, who, with envy, are jealous of Paul's high position and are trying to persuade Christians that Paul's way of doing evangelism and spreading the gospel is wrong. But our way, our ministry that we're doing, it's right. You live in this world. You know that that happens all the time, sadly. And so, That may well be what's happening here. Like I said, these are not false teachers. We're going to encounter in chapter 3 Judaizers, false teachers, and Paul calls them dogs. He has some strong words to say about them. Paul would not say these kinds of things about false teachers, but these are then genuine preachers of Christ. But they're petty. It may surprise you that pettiness exists within churches. (laughs) Just kidding. It doesn't surprise you. Here you are. You're in a church. (laughs) Is this kind of pettiness possible among believers? Absolutely. This sort of showmanship, this desire to be above others. Even great men have succumbed to this attitude that we find here among these. I'll give you one example. Think of a man we very much respect and should continue respecting, the great John Wesley. Here was one of the two great mouthpieces that God used in the 1700s during the Second Great Awakening to bring salvation to masses of people and to guide them. We still read his works. Very good. But I said he was one of two, and the other was his friend, George Whitfield, And Whitfield too, was proclaiming the gospel and seeing masses converted. But Whitfield extended his ministry to the American colonies at that time and Wesley stayed in England in London preaching. They were friends. They gathered a great number of admirers who were grateful for their ministry. And on one occasion, sadly, when Whitfield had traveled to the American colonies, Wesley he had always differed from Whitfield on his view of God's sovereignty. Wesley was what we call Arminian, believing that God cannot touch the human will. and Whitfield was very strongly what we would call Calvinistic. Believing God has control over everything, including human wills. And Whitfield was very adamant with Wesley, his friend let's not let this divide us while God is doing this great work of salvation. Unfortunately, Wesley did not feel that way. And while Whitfield was in the American colonies in London, Wesley preached a series of sermons that were vigorously in opposition to what Whitfield held very dear. Dear, this view of God's sovereignty. So much so that when Whitfield returned from his trip back to London, where he had been welcomed away with cheers and applause, certainly, when he came back to London, it was not that way anymore. Wesley had turned the Christian community against Whitfield. So much so that there were some instances where former acquaintances of Whitfield, when they would see him in the streets would put their fingers literally in their ears and run away because apparently that's what Wesley had encouraged them to do. This happens. That is very non-ideal. Man, a great awakening, such an immense work of God and a fracturing happens. And here with Paul he's in Rome, and this fracturing, very non-ideal experience, these people preaching from petty motives. We have to say, before we move into the good of this all, how God uses it, let's just acknowledge that this isn't good. You agree? It's not good. So even if God uses it, don't be this. Don't preach Christ from envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. That is really one part of why Paul includes it here. Because notice in our text, Paul could just in passing tell you, hey, there's also selfish preachers and God uses it. But he doesn't do that. He actually adds word upon word upon word to give you a very vivid description about these bad evangelists. He says they have envy. But more than that, they have rivalry. But more than that, they have selfish, self-seeking ambition. They're not proclaiming sincerely. They are wanting to afflict me, and on top of it all, a pretense, a hypocrisy, if you will. Paul could have just used one of those, it'd be fine. But he wants to provide you a negative example. So when you proclaim Christ, don't do it like this. Don't come to church and be like this. Don't do it, it's bad. Don't be like these things. I mean, the important thing to observe is that Paul is not talking about the vices of the Roman world, those are to be expected. Paul is talking about the church, ouch, us. And this is what he's saying, don't be. It's so easy for us as it would have been for Paul to see the faults in Rome. It's more difficult for all of us to see the faults at home, here, among ourselves. And yet, that's what Paul's highlighting. These are Christians within the community. If you wanted to test yourself briefly, think, do I have anything of this attitude in myself, Have you ever felt inspired to see your local church grow? Lost people brought in, others coming in, growing, healthy, exciting, bigger, more numbers. Just great. But have you ever felt that way deep down in the recesses of your mind, partly because you want to be bigger than that church down the road? (laughs) Or... Partly because there are Christians who think you're doing everything wrong, and if you explode in growth and everything's exciting, you will put them to shame. Has that ever been part of the motivation? Or someone has come from another church here, and there are reasons to move churches, sure, But someone has come from another church, and they've come here, and you're talking with them, and they are sharing with you how their previous church had all these problems, unlike this church, which has all these wonderful, great things about it. Have you ever relished in that? Oh, wow. Well, to bring you down to scale, let me just say, if they were very vocal about the problems in the other church, guarantee five years they'll be at another church talking about the problems in this church, so... We certainly do want to grow, even in size. We want more people to know Christ, certainly. We want people to grow. We want them to be under the Word. We believe in what we're doing here or we wouldn't be here, okay? That's all fine. Paul has no issue with the proclaiming of Christ. What Paul has issue with with these persons is the motivation at the level of the heart. And we can do ministry and we can do church and we can share the gospel. We can be courageous. We can do right things out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. So this is provided as a warning not to do that. Really, the essential issue with this selfish set of evangelists is this disconnect that they have between what they profess to be, share the gospel so Christ may be glorified, and what they actually are within. They can't just come out and say, you know what, we're really just out here because we hate Paul. (laughs) They're not going to do that. They're going to say, we love Christ, but the reality is not that. So, there's a disconnect. That's what he means when he says, not sincerely. See that? Or in verse 18, they do their work in pretense, with a mask on. They can never really have an integrated life because of what's motivating them. So, may God, please may God prevent this attitude among us. And as it pops up. May he snip it. Pull out the weed from the roots among us and grant us a sincerity. Now, to that end, let's move in the text from these selfish evangelists, negative example, don't be that, toward what we want to be. We'll see that whether selfish or not, God's going to use it for his glory, but this is what we want to be, not just the selfish. We don't want to be that. We want to be now the sincere evangelists in the text. See this at the end of verse 15. But others, so there were some, now these are the others, good group, preach Christ from good will, that is an affection toward Paul, good will toward Paul. And then he continues, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And he describes their work in verse 18 as in truth. Selfish evangelists think they can afflict Paul. They're wrong. These sincere evangelists know that God put Paul where he is to defend the gospel. And therefore, their actions are really exactly the opposite of the selfish ones. These want to hurt Paul. And these hope that as they proclaim the gospel, it will encourage Paul. They're doing it out of love and goodwill toward Paul. So we could really best summarize the second group, their motivations, by that word love. This was, you remember, in verse 9, exactly what Paul had prayed for the Philippians, that your love may abound more and more this group of Christians, that was true of them. And we'll see in the second chapter of Philippians that command Paul gives that we would all have the same love for each other. That's fulfilled in this part of the community, the others who are proclaiming in sincerity. These Christians are just in so much better of a place than their counterparts because they can be themselves in the truest sense. Because what's happening at the level of the heart as they share the gospel, love for Christ and here, love for Paul. And then they proclaim the gospel and they can say that? We do this because we love you, Paul? Because what they are inwardly, they can be outwardly. That's the point in verse 18 that they're proclaiming Christ in truth. Technically, both groups are proclaiming the truth, but only one group is proclaiming in truth with motivations that match inside and outside. We can all agree, I think, that this group is the Christian ideal. This is how we want Christians to be, and at our best, this is what we are. It's very interesting because here they are laboring in the gospel, and it's not even focused on their love for Christ or their love for the lost. But notice in the text, one of the motivations compelling them is their love for other believers, including Paul. So, add that to your repertoire of reasons to share the gospel with your neighbors, because we're all in this together, sharing the gospel together, advancing the gospel together. That's what motivates them, this love. Although so little is said about them in this passage, just very few things. Love and goodwill, that's basically it. And What they know about Paul We can extend this point out further because there's one more sincere evangelist in our text, the most important one, and that is Paul himself. As we come toward a conclusion of this message, we want to conclude by looking at Paul's attitude toward these two groups of believers. Verse 18 tells us what it is. Paul sets them both before his eyes and says, what then? What do I make of all this? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Brothers and sisters, think this way. You cannot think this way unless you share the priorities that Paul has. Listen, if on your list of true, genuine, inner priorities you have high toward the top, your reputation... In the eyes of others, you cannot write verse 18 because Paul's losing his reputation. Paul could, if he loved his reputation above all else, have written, what then? What do I make of these bad teachers? Well may God smite them and may they receive the shame upon their head that they're putting on my head as he quotes an imprecatory psalm from the Old Testament and asks God to shatter their teeth. That's how you'll feel. Even toward other Christians, proclaiming the true gospel, but spiting you. If your reputation matters the most to you. It didn't to Paul or he couldn't write verse 18. Or if highest on your list of priorities is your personal ease or comfort, you can't write verse 18 and neither could Paul have done. Because not only is he physically uncomfortable with chafing chains around his wrists, but it says literally, they're trying to afflict him emotionally, make him feel worse. And if Paul was most interested in a nice, easy, and comfortable life, then he can't write verse 18. He could write, What then? May these, only may these sour Christians reap what they have sown and become miserable themselves, and I hope all their ministry efforts collapse and they are proven fools to everyone. (laughs) Notice that's not there in the text, not in the Greek, not in the English, that is not what he writes. What does he write? What then? You take a look at your very non-ideal life, not only outside the church, but look at it inside the church, as Paul does. Mixed motives, it's just how life is. You look at all the messiness and you ask the question, okay, what then? What are you going to make of it? You're going to walk away from the faith because it doesn't align with what you thought the Christian life would be? You're going to sink into yourself and become bitter and prickly toward everyone because they're all messing everything up? Or you can imitate Paul who writes in verse 18, what then? Only, this is the essence of it, of his thinking, only that in every way, the ideal and the non-ideal, the non-ideal of pretense and hypocrisy in the church, and the ideal of true sincerity in every way, not just one set of ways, in every way, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I find joy. Not disillusionment. I find joy. And Paul can only find joy there if, at the level of the heart, not the lips, the heart, his highest priority is Christ being glorified. If that's what you want, more than anything else in life. And that is the impulse of the true Christian. If you desire Christ to be proclaimed, known, treasured, and loved, your neighbors to know Him and worship Him, other believers to see in your life the traces of His glory, to fall upon their knees and give praise to Christ for so great a Savior, so great a Lord. If you want that, Then you will find God doing that in the good situations you are in, and you will find God doing that in the messy, non ideal circumstances of your life. But if that's what you want, you'll rejoice in the good, and you'll rejoice in the bad, so long as Christ is proclaimed. Paul can suffer so long as his suffering exalts Christ. So long as through his suffering, as he'll say in a later chapter, he is sharing in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death to attain the resurrection. So long as his suffering has that purpose, let him suffer. Beat him with rods. Bring out the rocks. Paul can lose his reputation so long as his loss of honor increases Christ's honor. If that's happening, well, who cares? He takes the counsel so long later of Count Zinzendorf, who famously said, Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. If only Christ may be preached. Do you believe that? To die and be forgotten, that's very unideal. (laughs) But God doesn't need things to be ideal to get the glory He deserves and the glory we want Him to get. He can do it in a messy situation. He can do it in the last two years of our own local fellowship. He can do it in the challenges you're facing right now, and he will do it, and he is doing it. And do you believe that? You are leaving this room in just a minute to return to your very non-ideal lives and circumstances, to cancers that really don't make sense, that you want to turn out in a beautiful way, and you can't see how they shall. You're going out here to resume a sense of conflict perhaps within your families or with other believers that don't seem beautiful or good. It's difficult for you to understand what God is doing in those circumstances. You're leaving here to go back out into a country that is racked by political uncertainties and turmoils, and it's very disillusioning. That's why there's so much anger, there's so much fear. If Paul could look at that circumstance, you know what he would feel? Is Christ proclaimed in that I rejoice? Am I uncomfortable? Yes. Who cares? Does this threaten the things I've built up, my material wealth? That's fine. This is Paul speaking. That's fine. Paul is going to say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Is there a possibility of persecution and martyrdom, of physical discomfort, of peer pressure, of all sorts of miseries? Is Christ proclaimed? Will it give believers an opportunity to be more distinct from a hostile, angry, non-ideal world as they love others and each other? As they hold fast the word of life shining, as Paul will say in Philippians, as lights in the world, will that increase our luminosity as the world grows darker? Then bring it. That's Paul's attitude. If Christ may be proclaimed, if Christ may be honored, then you bring the cancer, then you bring the persecution, then like the martyrdoms of the Colosseum, you invite the lion, you take hold the sword and guide it to your throat. That's what they did. Because in this, Christ is proclaimed like old Polycarp. He invited the lion to come and kill him like Ignatius of old, who said, the lion will grind my bones down into a wheat as an offering to the Lord. You feel that way? (laughs) Those are strong words. Ignatius felt that way, not by some natural bravery. He felt that way because he's reading this. He's thinking like this at least. This is the way that Paul thinks. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And do we not worship a crucified Christ? Is it not true that the heart of our system of belief is the most non-ideal of circumstances, the blood and the iron, the crown of thorns, the blood trickling down the face of the Son of God? there in the midst of betrayal by his close companion Judas, abandoned by all the disciples at night and by God in some mysterious manner, there suffering a great perversion of justice under the rule of Rome. Is that not, it's not an anomaly, is that not the center of the message of the gospel? And you think you're going to get through life in an ideal, easy, comfortable way. (laughs) Sorry, you signed up on the wrong sheet. This is Christianity. That's the heart of it. But you know what the promise is? The same as in our text. What then? Look at that cross. Look at Christ. What then? That's our religion. That's our belief. What then? Only that, through His death, He redeemed for Himself a people for His own possession, purifying them, absorbing the wrath of God for all who would believe in Him, then dying, resurrecting, rising up into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. In glory, Christ is exalted and proclaimed. That's Christianity. And it comes with the cross and it results in the crown. Your life is going to look whatever the details, exactly like that. You are going to have a crown of thorns for yourself, if you will. You're not redeeming anybody, but just in the sense of suffering along with Christ. But what you will find is, even in this world, a bud upon that crown that will blossom. You'll live your life on Calvary, where there is ground watered by the blood of Christ and His suffering people and by their tears. But out of that barren ground will grow the sweetest smelling flowers you have ever experienced. Because in this very non-ideal world, whether Rome for Paul, Golgotha for Christ, Evansville for you, God is able to bring great good. Let's pray. Christ, it is our request that you would honor us by permitting us to suffer for your sake, as your servant will say later in Philippians, to us it has been granted that for the sake of Christ we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Please give us the honor to suffer in a way that we share in your suffering, that we become conformed to your death before we experience the resurrection and the life, please permit that the consequence of our lives, whatever else they may be, would tend to your glory. Help us humbly to submit ourselves under every circumstance you bring into our life or allow, if only you may be glorified. And to believe that, that the year 2020 which the world would count a great loss and misery, that to us, we shall look back from eternity and see it as a sweet and precious year. Because a consequence of those difficulties will be that Christ, you are proclaimed and seen and loved. Please produce this in us. Put this highest on our list of priorities this week. And grant that through us, others may come to adore you as well. For the sake of your great name we pray, amen.